When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. It is Friday, August 13th. Today, I'm joined by veteran business journalist Maggie Lake, as well as Harry Melandry of MI2 Partners. Just to give you a sense of what's on our radar today, today in U.S. equity markets, they barely budged uh, with the S&P 500, uh, you know, trapped within a range for the entire day. Very indicative of where we have been for the past 10 months, where over that same period, the S&P 500 has been within 5% of its all-time highs. Really remarkable. Maggie, what are you looking at? Yeah, Jack, not a lot of action in equities, but that was not the case in bonds. We saw big moves. U.S. bond prices fell after the University of Michigan reported a very big and unexpected drop in consumer confidence. The index fell 13% to its lowest level since 2011. Future expectations component also down sharply. Now, much of it thought to be due to concerns around the Delta variant and reopening, but still, that was a really shocking and, and sudden drop. In response, we did see the yield on the 10-year dip and close below 1.30. The 30-year fell below 2% to 1.94, Jack. Yeah, so the bond market yields dipping there, uh, maybe sensing, sniffing out some weakness in the economy and consumers as well worried about a slowdown. A lot, a lot of people are worried about a slowdown that for the past year, we've had a sugar rush of credit in the economy, but sometime we are going to have to pay for that back. Today, however, we are joined by someone who has a different view, Harry Melandry of MI2 Partners. Uh, if you are a Real Vision Pro subscriber, you might know him at whom as someone who moderates between Raul and Julian on their weekly Insider Talks video. Today, we're putting Harry in the opposite seat. He's going to be on the other side of the table giving us uh, his view, his framework for how he's thinking about these macro issues. Harry, welcome to the Real Vision Daily Briefing. Thank you, and thank you for the opportunity. Um, I've got to say, the phrase, it's better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to speak and remove all doubt, for some reason comes to mind. <laughs> <laughs> well, not at all. Um, I'm really looking forward to this. Harry, uh, in, a, in a report uh, for... Um, MI2 partners, uh, where, where, you, where you work with Julian Brigden, um, you write that Q4 data will be gangbusters. So a lot of people worried about the slowdown. You think it's going to be gangbusters. And you write once more unto the breach, dear friends. Why do you have, um, why are you, do you remain optimistic about the growth of the global economy? So first of all, the data is going gangbusters. Um, Almost any metric you use, you will see uh, stressed out supply chains, difficulty employing people, strong price metrics and inflation metrics. So the issue for markets is they're trying to look beyond that. And what they see looming up in the mirror is uh, the Delta variant. And it's very easy. If you made a bunch of money, uh, long of bonds, uh, shorter stocks uh, because of COVID, it's very easy to say uh, that's that we've got a second iteration that the same trade's going to work again. 
And I think we saw that with today's uh, Michigan sentiment data. Uh, bonds just rallied very sharply off of that. Um, now, for us, we believe that there are tentative signs of a peaking in the Delta variant. Uh, certainly the Florida data, which was restated, looks like it's already peaked. And the UK model is instructive here. In the UK, uh, it's clear that despite it being kind of counterintuitive, uh, Delta variant has peaked already and is coming down. Uh, we're not the only people who have noticed that the possibility is that the, 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 the Freddy Krueger of COVID uh, you know, might well have you know, popped back up to terrify people, but it, this might be the penultimate scare, the ultimate scare even, and that yes. this, you know, this thing's over. You know, Harry, I, it, it's ugly for sure, but I think one of the things that worries people is, are we in a rolling variant? You know, so, okay, maybe Delta goes away, but we're going to have things come at us, and they look at Asia. Asia's, you know, China closed its biggest port today. They had really good protocols in place, and it still seems like economic activity shutting down. If you think we're underestimating growth in the U.S., do you also, and, and you're looking at the U.K., are you also feeling like Asia's peak too? Are we overreading some of that? Uh, the Chinese have a zero-tolerance policy. They are far more aggressive uh, to COVID, among other things, they are far more aggressive in confronting it. And what I don't get is why, forgive me, let me check, let's check my notes. I'm just not gifted enough to speak without notes. Um, I don't really get why we will uh, take into account the Delta variant's dampening effect on, on economic growth without taking into account the Delta variant's effect on supply chains. So when we see the Chinese shut down its ports, shouldn't we worry about what's likely to happen to inflation uh, as a second iteration of that, a second order effect uh, for two to three months down the line? These supply chains haven't normalized yet and they're likely to get worse, not better. It's meant to be transient. Harry, so every month you moderate a discussion with Rao and Julian. Rao has a deflationary view. Julian, who you work with, has a more of an inflationary view what is your view on this? First, let's start in the, the short term. So this is this is likely to adversely affect my employment opportunities. But um, but uh, in the short term, I think you don't have to be that bright to see the inflation. Um, the Michigan Sentiment Survey uh, showed that up itself. We have a chart in it, once again, refers to notes. Uh, where uh, they reference uh, references to job and income prospects act to partially offset complaints about rising prices. Um, people are noticing the high levels of immediate inflation. Telling them it's transient doesn't stop them noticing it. Um, transient just means that uh, the, the uh, rate of acceleration inflation will pass. But you will have lost, if you have 5% CPI inflation over one year, the nominal value of your assets, sorry, the real value of your assets and real value of your consumption will drop by 5% unless you're compensated. Um, that's what the arithmetic says. Um, they notice and they're starting to be concerned about it. Yeah, I think the, the bond market's record of sniffing out inflation is quite poor. Its record of sniffing out disinflation is, is good. But I think if you look at the consumer price index, uh, um, when, when Maggie spoke in the beginning and, and we had that chart up, the red line on the bottom shows the one-year median expectations for University of Michigan, which is a, a survey of about 500 um, consumers. Net, you know, it's very rare that they forecast inflation below 2%. So they typically almost always overshoot inflation, this time um, projecting 4.6 inflation, 4.6%, which actually perhaps could, could uh, undershoot it. Who knows? 
Yeah. You, Harry, let me let me ask you something. Just so you're if I'm understanding you correctly, you're saying so the the again in that in that consumer sentiment, consumers feeling downbeat about their income prospects despite a very tight labor market. You're suggesting they're feeling bad about their personal finances because prices are rising higher than their wages. Are we sure they're not concerned that that, you know, maybe they won't be able to get a job. They'll be furloughed. People will be reluctant to pull the plug on hiring them now that they're not sure about the reopening. I mean, can we be sure that it is the price action and that there isn't something else going on in the labor market? This is key because this is what the Fed's looking at, right? This tight employment picture. Sure. And no, you can never be sure of anything. You have to interpret all the data that you see. But there's lots of data which is not consistent with weakness in labor markets. Um, there's lots of data that suggests that concerns about welfare uh, with respect to, say, uh, the housing market, housing prices, uh, rent rent levels and rent inflation, uh, food price inflation, uh, building material inflation. They're all, they're all pretty substantial. I wouldn't argue that they are not transitory because pretty much any inflation effect will drop out over 12 months, but they are welfare damaging. So uh, reasonable consumers would note that if you get a 5% rise in your wages, but you get a 5% rise in CPI, you did not get a rise in your real wages. So that's one observation. And Jack uh, raised the point about deflationary trends and, and uh, looking beyond the immediate. And I think that's a fair point. There are clear deflationary headwinds in this economy. Those headwinds are there. We talked uh, in the past about uh, a book by David Graeber called Debt, The First 5,000 Years. It's a great book. I recommend it to anyone. And I'll tell you this. I know for a fact that certain Federal Reserve officials have read it and have internalized some of the messages of it. Now, um, that, that book notes the damage, the, the pressure that high levels of private sector debt cause on a, 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 a reasonably free market economy. Um, so we're always running into the headwind of high levels of private sector debt. The only real offset to that is accommodative fiscal and accommodative monetary policy. And uh, MIT, we would argue that the US economy is never going to function well without highly accommodative fiscal and highly accommodative monetary. Uh, people will not win midterm elections uh, when they're faced with a deflationary environment. So our bet is political. In, in, ultimately, it's a political bet that we will see uh, any fiscal cliff will be averted. We will see a, a Biden administration driving to the hoop to make sure that they don't lose control of the House and Senate at this point. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-ads.com. I'm so glad you brought up the, the pressures on central bankers, particularly the, the Federal Reserve. When the Federal Reserve originated, it was to stem off banking panics. Uh, thereafter, its mandate ex expanded to become uh, a dual mandate to uh, stop, to basically staunch inflation and and um, you know employment as well. So 
But now it's, it's become even bigger. There's sort of a shadow mandate of, of maintaining asset bubbles. But with the inflation, there's, um, there, there has been the rise of something called uh, uh, um, flexible average inflation targeting. And on Real Vision today, uh, we had um, um, John Turek and Luke Kawa speak about that very issue. So I want to play a clip. And then, Harry, I want to get your reaction to it. So let's, let's take a look at this clip. Sure. Fate was never really intended to operate in an environment where you're starting so far above target and uh, and then having inflation right. normalized to the downside. It was predicated on a world where the Phillips curve still worked. We were just going to be a lot more humble about it. So this, to me, augurs for from like from a balance of risk type perspective is you have to wait till the inflation deceleration ends. So maybe that's in 2022. Maybe that doesn't happen until 2023. But you have to wait until that process fully plays out. And then inflation starts going up again before you can, you know, start saying that you've you've satisfied both parts of the the dual mandate. Of course, uh, what full employment is will be hotly debated over the next year. Whether it's you know, based on measures such as prime age employment, whether it's just based on yes, the the outright U uh, three, whether how much we're counting on the uh, fifty five plus participation rate coming back. But I don't expect there to be a lot of agreement on that forming. So ultimately, inflation, I think, is going to play a big role in conditioning the Fed's assessment of what full employment actually is, for better or for worse. So, Harry, Luke was saying that flexible flexible average inflation targeting was never intended to operate in a world um, that the world that we have now. It was predicated on a world where the Phillips curve, the relationship between inflation and unemployment, still held sway. And they say that central bankers now have to be a lot more humble about it. As someone who uh, used to be a central banker, do you agree that that central bankers have to become a lot more humble about flexible average inflation targeting? So I think flexible average inflation targeting itself represents an admission of failure in the past. And it represents the, the new guard of central bankers. Uh, Claudia Sam is a good example of that. She's not a central banker anymore, but she was. So it's a victory for people in her camp who and who argued that actually, if you look at central banks across the world, they missed their inflation targets and always undershot, always. If you consistently undershot, how are you patting yourself on the back? Right? We were not overshooting on employment. We were not overshooting on growth. We were undershooting on inflation. That's like, you know, what is wrong with you? And in particular, you could definitely look at the ECB and say, what is wrong with you guys? Come on, if you do a little bit better, right? So, th th that's that's what that's about. I, I'd also argue that uh, there's no academic that believes in a Phillips curve. There's there's no trade-off there, medium term, short term. Um, there's no uh, uh, theoretical backing for Phillips curve anymore. But there is a sense in which there are natural rates of employment, there are natural rates of, of interest rates, if, if only in the Vixellian sense. And now you regret asking me an economics question because of it. Um, so there are big changes taking place. And I think, once again, a lot of these big changes reflect changes in the politics. Um, it's no fun. If you think about it from the Federal Reserve's point of view, you just watched, you just watched Washington about in January 6th get a what looked like a you know pitchforks and torches surrounding them. I think there probably are central bank officials who worry the same thing could happen to the Fed sometime down the line. Bear in mind that there's no it's not an elected institution. 
Yeah, yeah you, you, they have a legitimacy issue all the time. Shouldn't be surprised they worry about that. Yeah, Harry, I think there there hasn't been a U.S. president hasn't threatened to fire the, the, Fed, the head of the Fed, like literally ever. Although I, I, I take your point, it's getting a lot more serious. We, we're talking all about the Fed and fundamentals and inflation targets and what they're looking at. Can we just take a step back? Because they can't do anything on interest rates until they taper, right? Until they get rid of it. I mean, Dudley said you can't do both at the same time because they cancel each other out. What is your expectation for taper? Do we actually think we're at a point where they can do this? They haven't been able to. Can they get themselves out of this box right now? Are we all assuming that's just going to happen? So I think the likelihood is that they will taper in the autumn. Um, tapering is not uh, a huge hurdle. Um, shrinking a balance sheet is a huge hurdle. Um, so tapering just means you're injecting less balance sheet, uh, lending the, the, the private sector less of your central bank balance sheet per month than you were before. Um, I think that's less of a challenge um, and one they're more likely to, to look at and want to do. In particular, what exactly is the rationale for buying MBS? You think yeah. the housing market needs stimulating? Yeah. And uh, how negative would you like real yields to be? Real yields are pretty damn negative already. But you, uh, but you could argue that there hasn't been a rationale for this for, for you know, the last eight years. I mean, it was never meant to be put into place as a decades-long policy. The problem is when they tried to get out of it, you had dislocation in other markets um, and the economy, you know, they've addicted everyone and the economy can't live without that, or so it would seem, or no one has the fortitude to withstand it. So... I, I heard Bill Dudley say, we have a game plan this time. We're going to communicate it about it, and it's going to be different. But is it? Every I mean, is he saying we're not addicted to cheap money anymore? Every time I hear the phrase game plan, I think of what Mike Tyson said. Do you remember what Mike Tyson <laughs> said? No, what? Everyone's got a plan till they get punched in the mouth. <laughs> and I think but the yes. same I think the same is true for the Federal Reserve. Um, so they, they, they will definitely look to do, to normalize policy. They will definitely look to maximize employment. Frankly, I think this is a compliant Fed. I think there's no significant distinction anymore between the Fed and uh, the US Treasury Department. Uh, I think they work together. I think they, they will work together. And in fact, I'd be very surprised if Chairman Powell was not uh, nominated for another term. Um, the issue you really, you, the, the crux of the issue you mentioned is something which is never talked about, which is the inconsistency of uh, banking supervisory policies with uh, the current state of the banking system and the desire to have banks uh, support the asset growth that's required for the bond issuance. Um, if you have proper banking supervision, you'll find you have a 2008 or uh, 2019 or 18 when, when we tipped over. Banks can't support those balance sheets with proper banking supervisory rules in place. Uh, they just don't have the equity. So really we need a steeper yield curve for a while. We need uh, capital raising from the banks. And you know, banks don't like issuing equity. It uh, can be considered dilutive. <laughs> I've got a question for you which is, I saw a uh, report in Bloomberg that in the Euro dollars market, there were a lot of bets being placed on that yields would remain low. In fact, that, that they, they would actually decrease. But it's my understanding that you, Harry, as well as Julian at, at MI2 are looking into the exact opposite trade. That is 
betting that short-term rates will actually rise. Why is it that you see uh, opportunities to short fixed income, particularly on the short end of the curve? So uh, we talked about uh, the Delta variant peaking. And uh, one of the things that gives us some comfort on that is a Time Magazine front cover. Uh, if Time Magazine has put it on the front cover, the odds are that uh, uh, that that particular trading cycle or news cycle is kind of reaching a peak. The only only greater confirmation I can think of is the Economist putting it on the front cover. Once it's on the Economist, it's definitely done. So that's point number one. Point number two. Uh, this has been a, a really unpleasant time to be a macro hedge fund manager. A lot of them had the higher rates bets on. Um, same with the, the longshore equity guys. The longshore equity guys have been going through a big degrossing at the same time. The macro guys had short uh, fixed income bets, long rates bets on. They have been carried out. Um, and you saw that turn maybe five days ago. Uh, and the technical picture... Uh, you know, I follow a couple of technicians here who are better technicians than me, so I'm like, I, I shouldn't plug Peter Brandt, but I like Peter Brandt's work. Um, uh, there's some evidence that we've already technically peaked out. Now, we've cleaned out those positions. We have incredibly strong growth. If you follow what's going on with the PMIs in the US, um, there's no signs it will slow down. And the inflation picture uh, really, we should be seeing prints drop because the base effects have turned unfriendly to higher inflation prints, right? It was very easy to have high inflation prints before. It should be much harder. They're not dropping. Uh, so the current level of inflation, I, I agree. If you say to me, is inflation transitory? Absolutely. Inflation is definitely transitory. I'm transitory too, right? I'm transitory. <laughs> me too. Right. All, all depends on your timeline, right? Exactly. And a, a couple of years of inflation, Look, I think it's better for the U.S. economy if we have a repressed capital market, a repressed bond market with negative real yields. That that will whittle away some of the excess debt situation in the U.S., but I'm not sure why a bond investor would sit still while that happened. Um, so, A, positions are cleaner. B, uh, 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 technicals have turned. C, delta variants coming. There's a lot of good reasons to short bonds at these levels. And why the long end of the curve? You said you said uh, bonds, but you're looking at you know the three month rate. So that's more, like more on the short end. The bills. Why? Why you know why would you short something on the short end as opposed to say shorting TLT or something like that? Which so is a long. End. A lot of things can happen at the long end. Like for example, Wells Fargo having its balance sheet restriction lifted. Uh, so Wells has got to put a lot of capital to work. Then it's I'm sure they're very happy about that. You know, they they've got all the employees and none of the balance sheet at the moment. Um, uh, so that's one reason a lot. There's a lot more cross currents at the long end. Uh, let me light that screen up again. A lot more cross currents at the long end. And, uh, you know, we're focusing on the Fed focusing on the idea that they will start to taper. If they do start to taper, people's thoughts will naturally drift towards what happens next. And, you know, Bill Dudley has made some excellent points about this. Keeping rates, let me put it to you this way. Um, we have retraced about 75% of the employment losses we had since the start of COVID. So one assumes you must have retraced about 75% of the monetary easing we've had as well, right? Maybe not. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. 
Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with lips and ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L-I-B-S-Y-N-Ads.com. Maybe so, not. Harry, I want to ask you, I want to jump in and ask you a question uh, from one of the viewers. Uh, and it's from Matt, who says, what in your collective view would be a better, fairer metric to quantify inflation? What should central banks and the Fed be using? Uh, for whose purpose? So you have to ask who and why. So central banks, they don't care that your purchasing power, to, uh, purchasing power is being whittled away. It's not mm -hmm. a critical thing. It's only critical if it embeds into your expectations of the future purchasing parity. So a one-off reduction in the value of money is actually good for the, for the US economy because there's a lot of private sector debt and it makes it more serviceable. Um, they don't care about the welfare of bondholders. And frankly, I think that's better that way, right? Bond investors are not necessarily simpatico to the rest of us. Um, that's that's how it should be. Uh, if you wanted to know about uh, the welfare effects, then you need to look at, accurately identify consumer baskets and accurately do a hedonic adjustment. I think the people who work at the BLS do the do a good job. They do the best job they can. And it certainly isn't a trivial thing to say. Nope, you're doing it wrong. You should do it like this. So it's not a bad job. But, you know, there are political pressures on these guys um, and the political pressure is to understate inflation, not to overstate it. So if you were to ask me whether or not they, their job is perfect, it probably isn't perfect. And it's probably underestimating inflation over time because same as unemployment. Unemployment is better to underestimate for political reasons than overestimate. Yeah, Harry, I want to, and Jack, I want to, I want to ask a question that I've been thinking about when I've been hearing all of this about wage inflation, and I haven't heard anyone talk about automation. Wages have had such a difficult time increasing because we've seen so much automation. And, you know, I, I had the misfortune of having to do a very long tr trip to North Carolina with my family in the car. I don't recommend it, Harry. And, um, you know, we, you, you stop at a rest stop and you walk in and it's all kiosks in the McDonald's, Right. Um, there, there, there was like one person in there. Same thing with the supermarket. Half the aisles now self checkout, and I, even on the higher end, I feel if you're if you're facing labor shortages and you're looking at paying wages, some of them are just doing it bonuses, which doesn't bake in one time payout, so they don't get stuck with a higher hourly. And some of them are just saying, you know what, I'll pay it for now, but I'm going to spend some capex on technology, and I'm going to automate it. I'm going to, I'm going to figure out a way to do with less employees because I don't want to have to deal with this cost. Yes. So it, it right now, maybe you're seeing them pay up, but what about automation? That was such a strong argument for, for so many years now. Has that gone away? So if it's addressed at me, I would say it's not gone away. It's a serious problem. Uh, it's an issue of, the, we talked about deflationary headwinds. Um, this is a deflationary headwind. Um, and, you know, that's why questions like universal basic basic income have hoved into view and are being debated because you've got two choices. We are competing in an international environment. Bangladeshi wages or Chinese wages or Vietnamese wages are lower than ours. We will never be competitive. At least, we, okay, we could be competitive, but I really hope we don't go that route. So um, in those circumstances, uh, reasonable employers, if they're going to compete, will look to uh, automate. That's true for manufacturing. That's even true for services. 
then how does say's law how do we how do we recycle gdp into consumption it's a deflationary headwind and uh, it's going to be a problem for policy for decades to come and right. my guess is it, it, we, we fix it via infrastructure we fix it via uh, those kind of measures yeah uh i think harry has a short-term inflationary view a long-term deflationary view i have a bad habit as a journalist where when i speak to a very intelligent guest i typically start thinking a lot like them um i'd say that for on the short term i think something that harry alluded to is that uh prices in housing have exploded if you measure it by the uh, uh case shiller something like 15 percent 17 percent um and yet the data on rent in in terms of shelter which is uh, 32 and a half percent of the consumer price index has barely budged i mean it's been positive but but barely budged so i think that um you know some some uh, economists or some some macro people are saying that there is a coming uh, rent crisis where rent will go up a lot over the next uh, six to 12 months on the deflationary thing i think long term of yeah there definitely are deflationary tailwinds uh, i think kathy wood likes to talk about good deflation of course because for a long time economists have thought about deflation as bad because it typically happens when there's a demand uh, falls off a cliff because there's a great depression or a recession or something like that um but in terms of technology making things cheaper of course that is a good thing oh i don't have to drive my car to go to the doctor and pay 200 dollars for this medication i can just order it online via a telemedicine thing uh, so, as well as you know so, um windmills and and solar energy in a way that is more deflationary than you know being an oil driller and having to fly halfway across the world and you know paying all these people. So I think that yeah, there definitely are um, long-term deflationary headwinds. No, absolutely, um, and we also have uh, substantial uh, longer-term costs that we've yet to recognize in terms of say climate change, uh, infrastructure renewal. Um, it's interesting to watch that agenda start to play in Washington. Um, it's also interesting to note that it's tied in with the competition with China. If you read uh, Jake Sullivan's paper in the uh, September issue 2019 of Foreign Affairs, what can I say? Uh, I have I have long evenings watching various children's TV shows. Uh, you know. um, if you read that, you'll see that he argues that uh, the we need to develop infrastructure to compete with China. That's a political agenda. It may be a very convenient political agenda, but it's a political agenda. I, you know, I, I don't have a better idea to Jake Sullivan's. Uh, I'm not sure it's true, but I definitely don't have a better idea. I've got a question, which is to start this show, will we put up a chart of the remarkable steadiness of the rally in the S&P 500 over the past 10 months. Over that period, uh, there hasn't been, S&P 500 hasn't gotten close to within a 5% drawdown from its max peak. So really, you only were tolerating a 2% drawdown at any time as an equity investor. It's just been absolute bliss, um, not to mention the, the total return, which is uh, you know very high as well. Harry, what do you think if the Federal Reserve starts tapering and we see something of a flash crash the equity markets punishes the fed do you think that fed chair powell um and and the board will blink and pause taper or is that just such a bad look that they have to go forward no matter what and in your answer harry could you incorporate something which you said to me and maggie yesterday which is never trust a central banker 
<laughs> so I was I was only a central banker for the first four years of my career, which I don't think counts. I've got a, I was in the same entry year as Andrew Bailey. I, I hear he did well, um, and uh, so bear that in mind. But you have to understand that central bankers they're not interested. Well, they might be interested in your S and P tracker for uh, a k but they they are not bond traders friends. That is not anywhere near their welfare function. That's nothing to do with, with what they're meant to be doing. If anything, uh, probably they, they high five each other when bond traders get buried. Um, so uh, if a central banker's responsibility is to try to persuade bond markets to sit still and receive and get receive negative real yields on bonds while uh, for as long as possible. And you know, that's a political, a social, and a central banking kind of mitzvah, if you like. It's a, it's a positive across the board. Um, now, uh, what the original question was about uh, drawdowns and about the possibility that uh, we might have to pause a taper. Um, yes. You know, uh, I'd suggest this to you. What we the objective this this is a, the chairman will be reappointed I, I suspect for another term to work with a, a previous chairman woman uh, Ms Yellen um, they are both uh, smart people they know exactly what's going on they have a lot of contacts through the uh, current uh, White House um, it would be uh, the White House would like to have the biggest possible fiscal package uh, to have the biggest possible uh, stimulus running through uh, to prevent a fiscal cliff in 2022. Um, if you told me there was going to be some kind of uh, adverse 10% correction in stocks, I think they they would be, they just, you, if you said, told them that, they would be beaming, grinning from ear to ear because it's not the taper that they care about. What they care about is that fiscal package. And let's see uh, someone block uh, $3.5 trillion fiscal package when the stock market's down 10%. Uh, Interesting, uh, Harry. Interesting. So, uh, no, I don't think there's anybody in Washington right now that's afraid of that drawdown. Mm. That's, that's an op that crisis is always an opportunity. And just to be clear, Harry, the, what they don't care about the stock market or a 10% uh, drawdown in the stock oh, market. Oh, they care about the stock market. They don't care about the bond market. They don't care about your bond profits, your trades. Uh, they, they, they are not there to protect your welfare as a trader. They will lie to you. Right, but to, fa to facilitate the biggest possible stimulus package, wouldn't that mean keeping yields low or, or, or no? What, what do you mean by that? Uh, I mean, if you wanted to get a consensus in Congress that we had to have a bigger stimulus package, uh, a bigger, uh, a bigger uh, infrastructure bill, the, the second one, the the one that's going through reconciliation. Yeah. Watching stocks dropping ten percent would do an awful I, lot to encourage. And if anyone if anyone doubts Harry, I would encourage everyone to go back to the day that they voted down um, during the financial crisis, voted down legislation, and the stock market just went crazy on the downside. You've never seen senators and representatives move so quickly as they did as I watched that tape plummet. Absolutely, Harry. We've seen we've seen this before. Yeah, constituents know where their 401k is priced. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Good point. Well, we're going to have to leave it there um, as we go into our weekends. 
Uh, Maggie, Harry, thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. And thank you to everyone at home for watching. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.